Welcome to the API experience. 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 Hi, everyone, and welcome to the API experience. My name is Matt McClarty. I'm the CTO of Boomi, and it's great to be here. Now, coming to us live from Paris, France, where he's attending the API Days conference, is Mike Amundsen. Mike, what's new in France? Oh, tons of stuff is, is new, are new. What, I don't know. Too many languages. Having a good time. Actually, we had, <laughs> we had some good sun today. Um, the conference started this afternoon. It's really energizing uh, a women in API session uh, uh, this afternoon, and uh, I'm looking forward to the rest of the next two days. So um, it's great. It's great to connect with everyone. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm. Uh, I've been. You know, I'm not on the road, uh, which is great. <laughs> I spent the last couple of months going to uh, California, Las Vegas, uh, Amsterdam. Sydney, London, and and uh, those were great experiences, but it's also great to be home. And as you know, I'm like probably more excited than I've ever been about doing this episode <laughs> because we have such special guests today. Uh, we, at the start of the season, at the start of launching our podcast, right, we talked about some of the themes we saw as really significant themes for uh, 2023 and beyond. Um and one of those themes was really about APIs everywhere, how we're starting to see, you know, APIs, we think of them as these tech things that that were came out of the whole uh, web startup scene and, and have fueled the growth of the digital economy. I mean, just, just how far reaching we're seeing uh, the usage of, of web APIs across every industry, in every region. Uh, I know you you had some experience working with the UN recently, yeah. Mike, and, and like just, just amazing to see how far-reaching the APIs are. But but today's theme is really around the fact that APIs aren't necessarily everywhere or, or web APIs aren't everywhere because the web is unevenly distributed. And so, you know, I, I, it was a few years, years ago, it's podcast-related as well, I, I was listening to the uh, Software Engineering Daily podcast mm. and I heard their most remarkable story about a woman growing up in rural Kenya and and starting a, a nonprofit, bringing education and, and technology education to uh, to you know to to communities in in Africa in Kenya, and it was just a, an amazing story. And I was fortunate enough to make the connection uh, with Nelly Chaboy, who's the co-founder of TechLit Africa, as well as her partner and co-founder Tyler Cinnamon, and. And we're just so blessed and fortunate to have Nelly and Tyler joining us today on the API Experience podcast. So, Nelly, Tyler, welcome. Welcome. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Glad to be here. Awesome. So, you know, we we do spend time um, with our guests. Always, the first question is to ask them about their their background, uh, getting into the the API space and the tech space. I think today we want to spend a little bit more time because it's such a remarkable story. So um, we would just love to hear the story of TechLit Africa, what it is, how it formed, and and just to share that with our listeners. So what's, what is the origin story? 
I can I can get started here to provide context. So I am a software engineer by training, but I stumbled into tech much, much later. I think I was 21 years old when I learned about Java. That was my first introduction. <laughs> and wow. and I, I grew up in rural Kenya. And I grew up, the first time, my first memory of using a computer was after high school when I was applying to scholarships in the U.S., so there was a cyber cafe we went to and I had to pay like um, almost a dollar um, to use the computer for about 30 minutes. It became really expensive and unsustainable. So I did most of my college application on a very old Android phone. So I would just type the essays. Um, and when I got to the U.S., wow. so I ended up getting a scholarship and coming to the U.S. And when I got, when I get to the U.S., I remember... I went to the library and I saw people typing really quickly. They were typing so fast. And I and I thought to myself, okay, I have a laptop now. So I bought a, a $300 Sony laptop. I I just went to the to Best Buy and I was like, I'm going to buy the white one because I had no idea what to look for in a laptop. I did not know what. <laughs> I was like, this Sony white one looks great. I'm going to buy that. And so... And I remember thinking that I am I have a laptop now. I'm gonna become really good at looking at the keyboard so I can type as fast as them. And um the American education is a bit different from my Kenyan education. There's a lot of papers, like 10 page mm -hmm. paper. I was doing chemistry and I had to write a 10 page paper about why chemistry, I don't know why I'm doing chemistry. So it was constantly <laughs> a lot of writing and I could not type. So, so I had to like write on a piece of paper and then struggle to transcribe. And yeah, so mm. safe to say I was constantly behind on my assignment and I stumbled upon um, Java because I was doing a math major and I was required to do an uh, introduction to Java <clears throat> my junior of college and I just fell in love with it. There was just that wow. instant feedback. Public static mm. void main pre- <laughs> Is it print? Hello world. Uh, system system out. Hello world. And yay. <laughs> you know this. Feedback, <laughs> yes. Which is a lot to be said to chemistry where you're spending so much time on, I don't know, yeah. wearing all these overalls and goggles and not even <laughs> feeling like you're making an impact. <laughs> but immediately, I just fell in love with, uh, with technology. And, and I wanted to switch to have a computer science major. Mm. But it was, I only have one year of scholarship left. I can barely type. I have no idea what Google is, what the terminal is, everything that is assumed to be a prerequisite. I don't know any of that. And mm. I kept telling myself, hey, Nelly, you came all the way from rural Kenya. You grew up mm. in poverty. You made it all the way to America. The only reason you're struggling with technology is simply because you grew up in Mogodio. Mm. That was supposed mm. to give me solace. But what it did, it told me, what about those kids growing up in Mogotio? Mm -hmm. And so I struggled to get a computer science degree. I, I do get a degree, but I can't even get a job because every time I'm on a Zoom call and I need to solve a piece of function, I can't even solve, like I, I cannot type. So I take forever mm -hmm. to type, but I can solve the piece of function on a piece of paper. So mm -hmm. I ended up doing a data entry job and spent another six months of touch typing training before I could become a software engineer. And um, yeah, so I met Tyler at my first, uh, my first uh, data, data entry job. And I, I'll let him pick up the story from there. Okay. Wow. <laughs>
yeah, so my story is totally different, uh, mm. but kind of the same passion for tech. So I grew up in in the cornfields in north central Illinois, and my parents had computers for work from when I was really young. And they would, uh, so I would get to play with those. Um, and then at some point they started upgrading computers every few years and I would get their old computer. So I would install games and I would figure out like how to mod things and I would try to dig into the system and poke around. Um, and eventually when I got older, I uh, I would get bored of whatever video game I was playing and I, I would have to figure out how I could mod it. So I think the first one was a creative assembly game. It was one of the Total War games. I found the config files. They had these uh, TSV files where you could change like the starting positions of everyone in the world. So <laughs> I would fiddle with that. And then over time, I would find like any game that had any customizability, I would figure out how can I tinker with this and change it to the way I want it. Um, and that turned into me just constantly trying to figure out how to make my own game. And I never finished. I would just start. I'd be interested for like a week and figure out you know, how do I make this guy move around the map and how do I get the acceleration and drag right and things like that. And then um, anyway, long story short, uh, after a detour coming out of high school, I, I went to do some martial arts performance in Vegas and teach for a while. And then I realized I needed a, a job that actually paid well. So I got into tech. I, I tried going back to school and I really struggled sitting through classes. So instead, I, I dropped out and I just reinstalled Linux every day thinking that um, the, the skills you need to do web development are, are um, there's a lot of systems work and there's a lot of networking. Like you have to have all that knowledge. So I figured if I could just, like if I, if I knew the system well, then I would be a pretty good engineer. So I just reinstalled Linux every day. And then eventually, maybe a year or two of doing that, I got a job as a backend engineer building internal apps at a moving company. Um, and that's where I met Nelly. The biggest difference is I, I, see, I see the creative potential of technology, but it's from a totally different angle. So I see it like, so the, the status quo for me, like our education system in the States really encouraged um, creativity, doing projects mm -hmm. uh, and things like that. But in Kenya, it's more, it, even to this day, there, Kenya is in, improving a lot. Um, but even just a few years ago, it was still mostly memorization. So mm. the, I think the, the potential and the immediate feedback of software, I think, means something different for Nelly. And mm. for me, I just, I'm so inspired, even coming from where I came from, with the amazing, the potential. Like you give someone a laptop and then you can create value just using that laptop. It's so cool. You connect it to the internet. And then through an API or through a web page or by building an app or um, even even physical things, like the, the creative potential that you get from a laptop is still unmatched. And I think it when I met Nelly, it became more clear over time how like what a huge opportunity it is that we have computers that are going to waste in a lot of companies. If we redistribute those you know, thousands or millions of people can get so much more potential. Um, so that's kind of how TechLit started. I, I think Nelly had different goals. I think I think the context here is that there there are no jobs like in a place like Mogotio. Someone mm -hmm. wakes up in the morning and the goal is to just find food for themselves and their family. That's mm -hmm. their goal for the mm -hmm. day, which is a really good goal. But 
the means are not there. So you wake up in the morning and you have no idea what job you're going to be doing today. You may be lucky and you find a construction site where you work all day and only make $4 a day. Or mm. you may find someone who may rent you a motorbike and you can do border border service, which is like a taxi service on a, on a motorbike and make mm. maybe 50 cents or a dollar that way. And so people are working really hard, but the means of productions are not there. And so when I discovered technology, I went to read all about all about like I learned about how companies are outsourcing their work. I learned about how it's very easy to just make so much money from a laptop. And and I realized that we can actually train people, like really train people to take advantage of the digital economy. Get that someone who is making four dollars a day, barely making four dollars a day on construction, we're making eight dollars an hour working as a, you know, even on Upwork or Fiverr or even working as a remote employee. And, and that really became the goal of Techler Africa in that how can we incorporate this very specific training for remote workforce into the education system in Kenya? So you can imagine a kid uh, as a student, like when I was a student, I go to school and I sit on a desk and there's a blackboard and there's only one or two textbooks. A teacher comes in and copies the contents from the textbook to the blackboard and then we copy the contents from the blackboard to our exercise books and then memorize that, and that was our education. Hmm. And um, and everyone is just trying to get better and better grades because it means they may go to a good university, maybe get a PhD, and you end up, end up with a community of overly educated people that don't have jobs to begin with. And so what hmm. we are doing instead is that we have this small computer lab in a school. Well, our computer lab has about 30, 30 computers in there. We have about eight lessons a day. So in a given lesson, we have 30 kids in there learning about web development, learning about coding in Python, learning about how to represent themselves online. And they're doing that every single, they're doing that twice a week, every week of the year for four to five years. And what we're hoping will happen is that once they graduate high school, they would have learned enough troubleshooting enough self-efficacy, enough uh, internet skills so that they can be able to secure a job remotely and be able to work remotely for any company in the world, especially without leaving their communities. Because you don't have to leave home to make it and the remote workforce make that possible. That's amazing. Uh, so so just the experience you just described there, Nelly, from um, you know just the, the classroom sort of rote learning, textbook, blackboard, notebook, moving into this wide range and it and it sounds like you know for for your own experience the the roadblock you hit early on was the was the touch typing which i think you even you have that as part of the curriculum too but right up to coding in python <laughs> i mean that's <laughs> that's an amazing spectrum it's it's really crazy because when we started when we started like we were i was we were i was just thinking particularly i was just thinking like I just want these kids to learn how to use a computer, just how to turn it on. And that's it. Like, <laughs> that maybe if they know how to turn it on and how to play some games here and there, then maybe they can use it to make money. And now we have kids using Vim. They even got me to use Vim. I never liked Vim. I, didn't, I was scared of it. When you see an 11-year-old using Vim, you better learn Vim. And so... <laughs> it's so crazy how far they have grown technically. And for these kids, this is their first time using a computer. So oh. for them, 
Yeah, that's what you do. If you're a text editor, you use Vim. That's what you do. If you <laughs> if you did a website, you build it yourself. That's what you do. So it's really crazy what because it's their first time using technology, how there's no blockers. Yeah. Even the yeah. issues we have about women in STEM, about like yeah. coding being like mostly boys who are coding. We don't have that. We have yeah. we have boys who love using Word document and creating Word documents. We have girls who love coding in Python. And so it, it it's such a privileged position that we're in, in that we are their first introduction to technology. And they are showing us just how much you can do when there's so much opt, uh, positivity, when there's no barrier, there's no stereotypes. You just you just go and do those things. They surprise me every day. Every every day, and I'm sure. I, I mean, what I'm hearing so much in what both of you are talking about is really the 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 power of enablement, of empowerment, of simply placing things in someone's hands without you know without any filters or judgments say you know here try this you're you're exactly right i i use i happen to use vim a lot and i struggle every day now again i'm going to be intimidated when i meet your students because i already know they're going well beyond what what i can handle and it's so remarkable it's it's so incredible um now i i also you know just to kind of keep things in the groove as to what we're talking and what we often talk about here to talk, you know, our roots about APIs and tech. I really want to make sure we also learn about the TechLit Africa itself. You, you've had to set up these, your own kind of mini web, haven't you? You've, you've kind of empowered students learning through your own sort of architecture. What can, what is that like for our listeners? Get, can you give them a sense of what it is you've had to kind of create in order to even get this started? There are a few approaches that other organizations take, and we tried out most of those before reinventing the wheel. Um, I think I think there are really, let's say there, there are three or four different approaches. So there's a lack of data access, right? Mm. Um, you could pay a certain amount per month to have a... Uh, like a 4G modem subscription, and all the kids could use that. But we found that the, so not only is it too expensive, also having the internet in the classroom, um, it's very distracting. Kids will end up on YouTube. Also, um, it it's um, it, get, it gets very complicated. So it would be a lot more overhead for us to manage. And because we have so many schools rolling out, um, the overhead grows pretty quickly. And then Last, it's all, it also can be dangerous. So because we we don't have a lot of overhead in place um, to make sure that everyone's safe, the kids could go anywhere on the internet, mm -hmm. right? Even even if we set up a firewall, I I just imagine like I was I was the first group in my high school to have internet, and uh, every time they tried to lock it down, we would find ways around it. <laughs> and I'm just imagining the same kind of situation. Absolutely. Um, Nope. <laughs> so, so to make things safe and to control the on-ramp, um, just to give them the best experience getting into tech, uh, we keep things offline when we start. Lately, we do have an internet connection, but offline is, so we, we deliver all our lessons offline, everything like that. And um, so I was talking about the different approaches that you could take in that kind of scenario. A lot of schools uh, will just get computers and then have no internet connection at all. Mm -hmm. So, for example, you get Windows 10, um, and then you don't update the laptop 
you just, whatever was on there with no security updates is what you have. And I think that's probably the most common approach. Um, and then uh, one step past that, um, of course, you know, with that approach, you can update the software and everything. Um, but one step past that is uh, you go full hog, like the kind of thing that we have here in the States or um, the kind of thing that you would see in cities all over the world. Uh, you just set up like thin clients. Um, everything is connected to the network. You have really good network in the room and in the school as well. You probably have a server in the school as well as um, servers in the cloud for various things. And that's kind of on the other extreme. And then we have middle grounds, which is where other organizations doing similar work end up. So one middle ground is, um, is that each computer is kind of standalone and um, you have everything on the machine. Uh, so there's an organization that mentored us, World Computer Exchange follows that approach. So they'll download, um, you know, uh, like 80 gigabytes of content, learning materials and everything onto the machine. And then that machine can stand on its own as an educational resource. And you can put 30 of those in a room and all the kids can do the same thing because all the machines have the same content. Um, another approach, uh, this you see this from orgs like, um, there's an organization called Rachel, um, and Rachel uses technology from Internet in a Box. Uh, mm -hmm. internet, internet in a Box's approach is mm -hmm. to have um, a server in the room. So you have one machine that could be just a Raspberry Pi or something simple. That has all of the content. You could download um, hundreds of megabytes or terabytes of content like Wikipedia or Khan Academy or things like that. Mm -hmm. And then all of the other computers in the school uh, are their own standalone computer, but they don't have the educational resources aside from small applications. And you load all of those over a local network. Um, so we, we've taken an approach closer to that, where mm. we have a minimal amount of content on a server in the room, and then we pull whatever we need on demand to the laptops. So um, over the last two or three years of running this in the classroom every day, um, we've found optimal places to draw the line between the client and the server, depending on the activity. Sometimes you really need to make sure that like the round trip request gets to the server and back. But honestly, that's pretty rare. So we try to, we try to um, push things as close to the client as possible so that if the network goes down or if a kid just turns off the Wi-Fi, mm -hmm. um, the class still works. This is the API experience brought to you by Boomi. So it is sort of like you said, the, I guess the, it was the Rachel, the, the internet in a box kind of an idea. So I think, um, and, and, and I imagine it, it sounds like if it's, if, if, if you need to load everything on the laptop and you're at 80 gig already, right, you, there may, you may be running into some machine constraints and so on. And I guess, you know, for, for listeners, like, I think the model you have now is you are sourcing the laptops by largely by donation from organizations kind of Tyler describing your 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 own origin story right where you were getting the the, the laptops from your parents your old old work laptops and so on you're you're getting a lot of this so it's hard it would be hard to drive consistency around the machine types and the storage and all that right on the machines coming in so I guess is that one of the drivers why you move to sort of the the thinner client, uh, you know, more more moving stuff to the server. 
So we get all of our donations from organizations, right? Virtually all of mm -hmm. them now. Um, and that's because if you're an individual, uh, if you're just donating a laptop, the, the amount of work it takes to ship it, sometimes it's too much work. And you can also donate that locally. There are a lot of people, um, like families immigrating to your neighborhood, for example, that could really use some tech access. Um, and then, you know, when your grandma is done with her laptop, it's probably too old for us to use. Might not be worth shipping across the planet. But a company that has 30 laptops in a closet, which is something that we see a lot, um, it's it really is worth shipping those to the other side of the planet because we can use those for another 10 years. So... Um, that's really what we're working with. Like a school district will donate 30 Chromebooks, for example. Mm. And then when we get them to Kenya, uh, we just install the same Linux distro we do on MacBooks and on Lenovo's and on Chromebooks. Um, mm. And then we have one uh, more beefy server in the room that delivers whatever heavy content we need. But really, um, we we have learned not to lean too hard on content. We We found that when we... When we try to do content first with the curriculum, it doesn't work as well as when we try to teach a concept first and then find or create content to back it up. So instead for touch typing, for example, we just had a keyboard and a web app, and then we iterated on, you know, which, which order should you push the keys and how many lessons do you need to be able to type? And that took us a few years, and that's probably how we'll do the other subjects as well. So it's less about content and more just uh, a little tool here and there with a great teacher in the room. It's a it's a very common mistake uh, that I think I think it's a very logical uh, step that people take when you think that internet is expensive over there. So let's we should do we should do what we should do is like load up tons and tons of content like Wikipedia and Khan Academy into a hard drive and get it over there so people can have a version of the internet. And we made the same mistake. It's a really totally logical step, but the value of the internet is having it when you need it. When you have a question, you're able to Google it. When you when you wanna learn how to fix your chair, you pull up a YouTube video. And it's very hard for someone to create all of that and put it in a thumb drive. Mm. And so the same thing happened to us. The very, I remember the very first time we started, we downloaded terabytes of content. We bought three terabytes of content and <laughs> we flew it all the way across you know, to Kenya. And we were so happy that we have our mini lab with content. But everyone who came to the lab just looked at the computer for one hour and ran away and never came back. And so we learned that content <laughs> is not the way to do it. But the very interesting part that we are saying, just on the same line, so it's very common. So in Kenya, let's say you work at a construction site or you wake up in the morning and your job is to hustle so you can eat at the end of the day, maybe selling vegetables, doing construction. And then at the end of the day, you have this like, just like you're winding down like we do, right? After the end of work, we normally pull up our phone and go to social media. Same thing over there. But though, but them, but us, what we do is that we buy like maybe just five five hundred MB of data, and probably mm -hmm. spend fifty cents on that. And then once we have used up our five hundred MB of data, that's all we get. Internet is very expensive, so you only buy them in small bundles, maybe a gigabyte, maybe two gigabytes, only for a few hours a day. 
And so what is happening, what, is, what, what we have seen actually instead is that our kids are doing that. <laughs> so our kids, they come to school and they learn about, I can give you an example. When we were teaching HTML, um, we, we, we just introduced HTML. We were like, these kids have been learning how to do rich text. They know how to do header text. They know how to do uh, you know, lists. So maybe teaching them HTML is not too hard because you just want to teach them like opening and closing tag instead of highlighting um, a piece of content on a on a Word document and making it um, you know a header. You can just do H1 opening tag, or instead of using a list, you can just use UL opening tag and then LI opening and closing tag. So HTML felt really easy to do, and so we started teaching kids HTML, and we were really proud of ourselves. And so there's this kid Bowen. <laughs> This kid, this kid Bowen, who came to school one day, and as we were learning HTML, we noticed that his website looked different. He had colors on his website. He had font. He had a background color. And we were like, wait, how Bowen, how did you do that? And he said, I was so tired of my website looking ugly. So <laughs> I borrowed my sister's phone, and I bought some bundles, and I went to YouTube, and I said, my website is ugly. How do I make it beautiful? And, and so he watched the video. <laughs> paused it, and then grabbed some CSS code, came and tried it, it worked, and now was teaching everyone CSS. And then now we had to come up with a CSS curriculum so that the kids can learn. So we are noticing that but just by, uh, and then and then same kid, he, we were doing, he wanted, so he learned how to change the background, but he wanted to change the font uh, of his content. So he went to the what we use for documents, so an uh, only office app, and looked at all the fonts that were there, <laughs> looked up at the font, and then went back to VS Code and tried to use VS Code autocomplete code to see what, you know how you type like font family and then it autocompletes for you. He tried to do that, and so he was able to change the font of his web page by grabbing the font from the document and typing it. So like, even without the internet, they're finding ways to learn. Yeah. And when it's yep. not enough, they go and put their family's phone and spend money to buy bundles. <laughs> and so all, all to say that like the value of the internet is having it when you need it as opposed to downloading terabytes of content. And so for our, um, our setup, we are leaning more on the instruction. We are leaning more on, on supporting them, teaching them the fundamentals. And as we are seeing, they continue to surprise us by going and learning further, by going and accessing the internet maybe through their parents' phone, and really, um, and just really, it's just really amazing what they can do. I can't imagine learning software engineering without a, other than the internet, without Stack Overflow. I don't even know, like, I'm trying to unpack everything there. Like, I think what you just described is so interesting because, Nelly, you talked about your origin into the, into the software engineering space as being like discovering Java and the feedback loop of immediate, a sort of immediate gratification of, of, of coding and seeing the results right away versus the laborious uh, prepar preparation required in chemistry and so on. I'm also thinking about the sort of how the internet evolved and started with bulletin boards and, and then, you know, America Online and Yahoo browsing through things, categories of stuff, and then Google coming in and saying, no, people don't want that. They just want you to be able to search and find what you're looking for. It mirrors that exactly. And I think... And Tyler, back to you, you know, your own background as a kid 
playing around with computers and being sort of hitting the wall and things and always trying to break through like that that whole that story has all of that <laughs> in it it's just it's like are you so you so you're kind of saying like it's not about the content it's about the tools and the drive towards creativity like are you seeing that that's really what's driving the learning absolutely yeah the um there was something nelly was saying just at the end of this year so Every few weeks when we're when we have classes in Kenya, we make so much progress. It's insane because we're constantly developing a, a new piece of curriculum for the next term or the next half term. And we're testing it with new kids. So every day we watch how our new changes worked with the kids, what they learned, what they struggled with. And then we we change it so that, you know, the next day it can be a little bit better. And Nellie was just saying at the end of this year, because we were just about to roll out Python, she was saying, we don't have enough color. So the kids are getting really technical. You know, they're able to write functions. And we just had them do, um, we had them use uh, Python 3. So they were just doing input and print, basically. They would, they would build up conversations with if statements. Um, so they're, they're able to write little programs. And we're thinking they're really technical. This is working great. And Nellie was saying there's not enough color. And uh, I think we, what, yeah. what you said about creativity is really important, Matt, because we, um, that's something that we're, we're really pushing for. We, we want them to look at the world as something that they can shape, um, something that they have agency over. If they, if they see something that they don't like in their community, they have the power in themselves to change it. And I think technology, because you get the feedback so quickly, is a really great tool for developing um, self-efficacy is the term we're using now, that, that kind of feeling that they look at the world and they change it. Um, so one win that we had at the end of the year with creativity is, uh, uh, I'll go back a little bit for this story. So at one point, I don't know if it was around CNN or it was before CNN, um, a team at NASA found Nellie on LinkedIn, I think, and then they wanted to do uh, Zoom classes with the kids. So in one of these wow. classes, we've done maybe six or seven of these. In one of these classes, uh, they taught the kids how to spawn things in Minecraft. So <laughs> we got Minecraft on a bunch of machines, and then the kids, uh, it was just like they were spawning infinite chickens or something. Um, <laughs> so they were playing with mobs, and, and then we had to figure out, um, so Minecraft has a license that's tough for us to distribute. Um, so we, we're using MindTest instead, which is just a, an open source clone. Um, so I have been trying to get MindTest to stick for like months. And I was, I was starting to give up, and I forget how we finally got it to stick. I think I just sat next to a kid when we were doing Open Lab one day. And I just, I just I'm, not, I'm not sure which row I was sitting in. I just sat there, and I played MindTest in front of them until they started playing. <laughs> I thought if I showed them how much I love this game, then they will catch on. <laughs> and then, and then uh, finally, like they're all playing on the same network together, and they're all. Uh, at first, it was a massacre, but then eventually, they learned to make things instead of kill each other. And uh, and then at the end of the year, that's how we had color. So now we're starting to find little things here and there where they can be more creative, like they can create their own house in Mind Test, for example. Um, but, but that is something right. Like just wow. for context, by color, I mean like I mean creativity, I mean music, yeah. and I mean music, yeah. video mm. production, and and so the the mind story just to continue. So um, 
So the, the certain learning, and then to be fair, the, we were competing with Mario Kart, which is like Super Tax Kart. So we have Super Tax Kart where they race against each other. So you can't. They like, it love was, that. It's really hard to get Super Tax where they're racing against each other to like to come to mind test. So it, it took a lot to get them to love mind test, but they love it now. And immediately they just started. They started building. Like one kid started to build his own school. Like the entire school, he built all of it uh, in Nantes. And then it was a lot of work. It was really a lot of work. So what he started doing, started to try to get other kids to help. So because they loved Mindtest so much, I made a deal with them. I said, if once you finish touch typing and you can type 25 words per minute, then you can play Mindtest. So this kid, uh, Bowen, had finished, had finished, but other kids were typing. So what he used to do, he used to campaign. When someone is almost done with touch typing, he goes and cheers them on and encourages them to finish touch typing so that once they finish touch typing, they can join his team. They can be, And then once they finish touch typing, they join his team for maybe a day and then they move on. They go do their own thing. And But Moen never gave up. He kept trying. He kept trying to get more people <laughs> to his team. Until one day, this, this girl, uh, we call her Toto. Her official name is Grace. Toto is Swahili for like a little kid. <laughs> so Toto joins Bowen Bowen's team and says um and then and then leaves the next day. And then I asked Toto, what happened? Why did you leave Bowen's team? And then he says, like, oh, Bowen had me in the basement, like building the basement, but I wanted to go outside and he told me not to go outside, so I left. <laughs> so I thought, oh my god, that is really good feedback. So yeah. I called I called Toto, I called Bowen and I said, Hey, Bowen, Toto has a feedback, has a feedback about your work ethic. Like you as a boss. And Bowen was like, no, that is not true. Like he could not process because he's a kid, 12 years yeah. old, right? He could not understand why he was being a kid. But I'm like, hey, Bowen, as a boss, you have to listen. You have to listen to our employees. And then eventually he was like, uh, he was like, okay, he, he kind of understood. So he told Toto, I'm really sorry that mm-hmm. he felt like he could not leave the basement. If you come work for me again, you can leave the basement. It <laughs> sounds really bad. <laughs> Honestly, okay. So one of my big, yeah, one of my takeaways here is Bowen because he's the one who brought CSS in. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So he's 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 got a he's got the future in in senior management entrepreneurship. Like you know, the world is his oyster for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then he um, he went on. So I and then he went and give give Toto a cookie. Now Toto joined his team. And then all of a sudden there were like six other people who joined his team. So there were seven of them. And they were able to finish the school. And because there were seven of them, they had to do Scrum. They had to do Agile. They had to ah. stand up <laughs> and talk about oh. who's doing what. Because another problem is that maybe if they build a swimming pool and they put too much water, then the school would flood. Or someone may start a fire and burn the whole school down. So they needed to have stand-up. It's a, that's amazing. Like the This, this <laughs> organic uh, sort of self-discovery of these practices that you know lots of consultants are paid lots of money in the software engineering industry to go and promote it just sort of emerges in the classroom and the and just the difference between talking about reevaluating the lessons at the end of the day and measuring and then adjusting the next day versus you know a teacher doing a curriculum plan for the year like it's 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 just amazing to see how this has all sort of come up organically it would be really hard for us to imagine what we can teach because, again, we are so we are adults. We are so limited. We have our own stereotypes. So we keep thinking this is too hard for the kids. So we'll never teach them those things. Like I would never have taught them Vim. I don't even know Vim myself, right? So. 
Let me. I'm just going to say, I, I'm, I'm sort of like Matt. I'm, I'm almost flabbergasted on what I'm hearing. Just your last, your last comment, uh, comment, Nelly, about this. Well, I would never have taught this, or I never would have planned that. I mean, this is again. These are things that these notions of don't plan too far ahead, don't create a rigid system, be prepared to respond to what happens. These are complex. We we say complex, advanced topics that we. Try to teach adults in in systems theory and all these other things. You are living it every single day, and it's just so encouraging and so fascinating that that you're in a place where, as Matt said, things things emerge. And I, and I think there there are great lessons for everyone in in terms of this again, this empowerment and these other things. There must be. I mean, is there? People from that are listeners, our listeners are going to be saying there must be a secret, there must be a special thing that they're doing or that you know or or they're, that they're not telling us because so many wonderful things are happening. How do you explain this kind of, you know, Tyler talks about creativity, you know, you're talking about not focusing on content and, and how does this happen? Why is this going on here? I think I think it's it comes from I, th- I think it's just like. Okay, this is what we keep saying. Bottle and I keep saying, this thing is so hard. Whatever we are doing is so freaking hard. It's mm-hmm. so much easier to just go and make good money as a software engineer and live like you know the fancy life. And so, since we are choosing it, since it's very hard, let's do it right. Like <laughs> it's like it's so hard. Like doing it sloppy doesn't even help. Like it's hard anyway. So we might as well yeah. do it right. And 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 the whole thing. Um, we have the lofty goal where we want these kids to be able to work remotely once they're old enough. Like once they're 18, they go on remotely. And we just really love these kids. Like we we love them so much. And 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 the whole thing is like we take we have about seven thousand kids. We take it as if they were mm. our own, right? And when you approach something with a lot of love and care and we spend every time with them, we are constantly observing our classes. I think we learn so much from that instead of mm-hmm. like, you know, just being in an office far away from them and imagining. Every time we are away from them, we try to come up with a solution or an idea. It just end up <laughs> really badly. It doesn't work. <laughs> but when we were there, when we were <laughs> so we don't even bother anymore. Like we might as well have a vacation if we're away from them instead of trying to imagine <laughs> things we can do and then just fall flat. There's just There's just so much there. The, the 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 whole experience so you i mean you you meet you come up with this idea of starting this program um you start getting equipment you have you've you've already described some of the false starts or, or moves early on that you had to change you're pivoting away from content into more providing tools i think nelly you had you know started sort of building a school and then we're pivoting to getting the getting the technology in there and and all this goes on uh you're you're you stick with it the whole time you're following the sort of following the intuition based on the experience of the kids things are succeeding and then in 2022 something amazing happens you're nominated for the CNN hero of the of the year award go to the ceremony and 2022's CNN hero of the year is Nelly Chiboy. I mean, that must have been a, not only a remarkable personal experience, but I mean, how has that experience changed things? Has that really been an inflection point? I think you 
kind of you know, we talked earlier. You you mentioned it's it was you know changes certain things, but what what is the overall impact of that been? I think it definitely gave us a lot of legitimacy. I think it, it's it's incredibly hard to start something and to wake up every morning and choose. So when we so in 2019, we just left our jobs. We were living in downtown Chicago. We were working as software engineers, living the best life. And we just left that and relocated to Kenya. No no savings, no salary. We just left. <laughs> we had a little bit of savings, but we just left. And 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 we just worked really hard. And this is this is incredibly hard. It's it's mm-hmm. I don't it's really hard to describe how hard it is. And um and every like everything that could go wrong always goes wrong. Things that you don't even think would go wrong, they just go wrong. Like why? Why? <laughs> why is this not easy? <laughs> no. And and it's so crazy. And the crazy part is that just that how easy it is to give up. Mm-hmm. Like every morning you just wake up and you decide, you know what, let me fight for another day. Let me fight for another day. And so uh winning winning the CNN Hero of the Year was just so amazing. I I think when I had my name, I really screamed and I screamed because I was just so tired. <laughs> I was so tired. <laughs> I, was, I was so tired of grinding every single day, waking up and choosing to fight, even though everything is telling you to give up. And and just, uh-huh. I was just, and, and there was so much, it, it, it helped us so much. And the one thing that it actually helped us is, is that it came with um, a lot of money, which is a lot of money to us. And, and mm-hmm. we were able to grow salary. So before that, mm. I used to work remotely for companies in California. So during the day, I'm dealing with techlet, the kids, the schools, all the stuff that it takes running a company. And then at 8 p.m. until 3 a.m., I'm working as a software engineer, you know, wow. dealing with mm-hmm. office politics <laughs> at yeah. 2 a.m. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, wow. so it's like, and that's what I needed to do to get by is because, you know, uh, I don't have an income that I have to get an income somewhere else. And and so one of the cool things is that we got some money and then we were able to, uh, you know, draw some salary. And now we can, we're able to do this full time. We are able to, we're able to spend more time in Kenya. Like next year, we'll be sending, spending almost 11 months in Kenya. And so things like that has made it a lot easier for us. Something else that has made it easier for us is that Right now, we are in 26 schools in Kenya, and these schools are completely spread out. We have one near the border of Uganda. We have one on the far end in the coastal side. And so the schools are so spread out. And the way we're able to do that, because we work with remote communities, these communities are not even online. We can't go to like Google and find them and then network with Mm -hmm. them or call them or find like that. And the only way we can do that is by working with local communities, local NGOs. And so mm-hmm. since the win was publicized, like uh, the whole nation knew about it, so many partners uh, came up, so many partners that enabled us to go into a new community. And so we're going to this new community. They already have us, we already have a relationship. And all we need to do is just bring our program in there and maybe recruit mm-hmm. someone from the to teach our program. So we were able to scale a lot more. We went from about like eight schools to right now we are in 26 schools. So that is that is pretty great. And and again, it's just like, it's easier now. It's still really hard, but it's a little bit easier. <laughs> yeah. And I can't give up now. I'm the CNN hero of the year. So I guess I have to. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> 
You're you're all in. Wow. Yeah. It's on TV now. <laughs> you can't back out now. You know, uh I I just want to say this is, it is so it is it's so uh uplifting and so so encouraging to hear these kinds of things. Um and, and I know that our listeners would want to be interested in how they can help with you as well. I know Tyler talked a little bit about this. Um, what are the ways that uh, our listeners can get involved and support TechLit Africa? Is there What can you tell them? The way this normally works is uh, we meet someone in a company that's really motivated to help. And then when they reach out to us, we have a few simple steps. So um, companies that have computers to donate, um, we will we will hook you up with either a shipping label or a ship a shipping label and packing supplies, and then you pack up those computers and you drop them off at FedEx, or we have someone pick them up if it's the size of a pallet, and then uh, they make their way all the way to Kenya, uh, literally to our doorstep where we have our headquarters in Mogotia, and once they get there, um, we take them out one at a time. And the first step is that we record it and we tag it. So it has a unique ID in our system. And then we shred the hard drive. So we're not, um, we're not ISO certified to erase data, but we write uh, two passes of random bits across the hard drive and then one pass of zeros. Um, not as good as completely destroying the hard drive, but <laughs> it'll be pretty tough to get anything off of there. So once we have it erased, um, we we write um, a version of Linux. Uh, specifically, right now, we're using our own version of Artix Linux, which is like Arch Linux. Um, and to make uh, updates easier, we have, we have ButterFS, an awesome file system um, that helps us just send the bits we need over the network. So instead of sending 10, gig 10 gigabytes over the network to a remote school, which is what we were doing in the years before, um, now we can send, it can be as little as, uh, I've seen 10 megabytes. So we can wow. get the, the system diffs really, really small with ButterFS. Um, so we have an Artix system that we install on ButterFS um, with bootloaders that support virtually any x86 hardware. And we have all the Wi-Fi drivers for every piece of hardware that we've seen. Um, right, so once we install that whole system, we... We configure one of them to be a server, and then typically it ends up in a box and gets shipped out to a remote school. So once it gets to the school, we have a teacher there who has worked in a school before, and they know how to set up the Wi-Fi router, and uh, that's about it. We have one Ethernet cable to a Wi-Fi router and then 20-something computers that are clients, and it's ready to go. And then typically it'll sit in a school for... Um, we actually we haven't retired very many computers at this point. We have maybe... 500 or 600 deployed right now and we've only retired six to ten very few a couple have been broken um and then i can think of like two to four that had hardware specs that didn't work on our previous version we can probably deploy them again right now but i'm imagining once once those computers get to a school they can sit there anywhere from five to ten years depending on the age um, I don't see any reason to retire anything we have in the field right now. It looks like because we've 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 trimmed most of the extra components out of this system, they can just run forever, virtually 
I'll let you know once we have something we need to retire. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. th- that's, that's yeah, that's just really so awesome. Awesome. And again, so, so very, very encouraging, you know, now I'm listening to Tyler. I, I, I know a little bit about what the initial one laptop per child program was supposed to be about and supposed to do several decades ago. You're doing that same kind of work with, with shared hardware and mm-hmm. and creating a you know a kind of network architecture, a kind of machine architecture that's that's so successful in this environment. And if nothing else, it's an example of how others could be focused on helping do the same kinds of things in other places. Absolutely. If if you're working at a company that is retiring laptops, we can get many, many years out of those laptops. And the cost of shipping is not too bad. It can be it can be as low as fifty dollars per laptop mm. to get it all the way to Kenya, and that means that we can use it, um, you know, un- until the lid falls off, basically. <laughs> and kids would be learning on that. We that's that's roughly um, we would have uh, on average it's like twenty kids learning every week on that laptop until it's wow. dead. Wow. Um, awesome. Anyone that does want to donate computers, you can you can email us. You can also find details on our website, techletafrica.org, or you can email Nelly or I. That would be uh, Tyler at techletafrica.org or Nelly at techletafrica.org. Excellent. We need more support on computers. We also always take donations. And one of the best ways to support us is to join our monthly giving program. So that I know Matt is one of the pioneers, one of the pilots. <laughs> of the program and and that is really uh we spend most of our time in kenya like next year we'll be spending 11 11 months and it takes a lot of work to make this work and so when you join our monthly giving program even at ten dollars a month you're ensuring continuous support um with less overhead that may sound bad but (laughs) which is just so busy and then (laughs) i know Uh, and then uh, maybe even checking with your company about their giving options. Like we have some companies that sponsor a school. Um, so you can imagine like all this impact that we're talking about, it costs us about $8,000 a year to support a school of about 400 to 500 kids. So the donation really That's goes amazing. a long way. So maybe a company may want to sponsor a school and you can just check with your company about um, the various giving programs they have. Yeah. Absolutely. Amazing, amazing work. I think when you were talking about how hard it is and how just it's it's gotten a little bit easier, but it's still hard work. I think the more everyone contributes, it'll still be hard. It'll always be hard, but it will, you know, everything will help. And the outcomes, the the learnings, the just the empowerment and the self-efficacy that you're bringing to these kids and, you know, to really to communities is just so inspiring so i've this is you know this is something i've dreamed about having you on the podcast and dreams come true to hear i mean i think it's great i love what you're sharing we went all the way from you know just the the high level story and the impact to right inside those laptops uh i hope that you know it's it's been just been a wonderful learning experience for me and on behalf of mike yes thank you too Nelly and Tyler. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you too. It was fun. Awesome. So, and and thanks, of course, to the listeners. We hope you got as much out of it as we did. I'm sure you did. 
Uh, it's great having you here, and we look forward to bringing you the next API experience. Bye for now. Bye.